Romans chapter 7. We're going to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning. But uh, as I was thinking about this passage this last week, I was reminded of a story that uh, I want to share with you. A man walked into a doctor's office, and he said to the doctor, he said, I have this, this awful headache. It is always there. It will never go away. He said, can you help me? Can you give me something for it? The doctor said, sure. He said, let me just ask you some questions first before we do that. He said, uh, do you drink a lot of liquor? The man said, liquor? He was indignant, and he said, I never touched the awful stuff. He said, okay, well, do you, do you smoke? Smoke, he says. I think smoking is disgusting. I've never touched tobacco in my life. Well, he said, I feel a little embarrassed asking you this, but I need to ask this. He said, are you like, you know, like some men, they like to run around at night. And the man said, what do you think I am? What do you take me for? He said, I'm in bed every night at 10 o'clock at the latest, without fail. Well, then the doctor said, well, I think I know what your problem is. Do you have this uh, sharp shooting kind of pain in your head? And the man said, yes, that's it. I have a sharp shooting kind of pain in my head. The doctor says, I know what your problem is, I think. He says, your problem is your halo's on too tight. <laughs> and all we need to do is loosen it up a little bit this morning. Well, this morning, maybe you're here and your halo's on a little tight. And I want to talk to you this morning about loosening our halos because I've realized in my own walk with Christ that there have been times that I've had that sharp shooting kind of pain in my own head. I've been wearing my halo too tight. You see, I felt like I was a Charles Atlas kind of Christian, that I had to bear the full weight of my Christianity on my own shoulders, a pull-yourself-up-by-your-own-bootstraps kind of believer. God saved me, now it's my job to change me. The problem is I, I always fail. And the harder I try, the more I find I'm inadequate the more insufficient I am, and my inadequacy looms before me like a Goliath. My security is shattered, my bootstraps are cut, and my Charles Atlas spirituality is reduced to a wheelchair with a life support system. You see, what I need to learn and remember is what Jesus said in John chapter 15. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. I think the Galatians that Paul wrote to were people who wore their halos too tight as well, because he asked them in Galatians chapter 3, he says, are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by your flesh, trying to live out their Christianity in their own strength and their own ability? Lewis Smedes, in his book, Shame and Grace, understood this. He insightfully points out, he said, guilt was not my problem as I felt it. I think many of you understand what he's saying here. What I felt was a glob of unworthiness that I could not tie down to any concrete sins I was guilty of. What I needed was more than pardon, was a sense that God accepted me, approved me, owned me, held me, affirmed me, would never let me go, even if he was not too much impressed with what he had on his hands. What I need to learn and what all of us need to be reminded of, I think every, every day of the week and every moment, is that we are in desperate need of God's grace. 
that we cannot live this life, this supernatural life called Christianity, a walk with Christ, without God's intervening grace like the air we breathe. We need it every moment of our lives. The Apostle Paul reminded us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, For it is God who is at work in you, both the will and the work, according to his good pleasure. We need to be reminded that it is God who is working us, both the will and the work, according to his good pleasure. It is God who is at work in you. He's doing the work. He's giving you the will to do it as well. We need to remember what Paul said to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 6. He who began a good work in you will complete it. Maybe you're here this morning. And you're feeling fatigued, you're feeling tired, you feel like your Christianity is worn out, and you need to be refreshed. I'm here to tell you this morning, you need to hear the message of the truth of God's grace. We need to know, we need to be reminded that we cannot live this Christian life without the grace of Christ every moment of our lives. Paul understood this. And he talked about this in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7. You see, Paul understood something about human nature. It's something we all get. That we have this tendency to be extremists. We, we either swerve one side of the pendulum or to the other side of the pendulum. In chapter 6, he's talking about the extremist who says, you know, if we're saved by grace and if I, if, uh, when I sin, I ex experience grace, then that means I can sin all the more. And that's called licentiousness. Believing that grace is therefore a license to sin, but it in fact is not. But Paul addresses the other side of the pendulum in chapter 7. And he talks to those people who have their halos on too tight. He talks to those who say, you know what, we need to keep the law. We can't ignore it. We've been saved by grace for sure, but we must live under the law if we are going to please God. And the problem with people like that is they don't understand the purpose of the law. The law could never redeem us. It could never save us. It could only point out our sins and our need for Christ. But those who live this legalistic lifestyle are what we call legalists. And they live on the other side of the pendulum. And they defined grace in their minds, but they have not filled the whole in their soul with God's grace. You see, wrapping our minds around grace is not enough. We need to wrap our whole heart, our whole life around it as well. You see, there's a world of difference between intellectualizing grace and internalizing grace. When you intellectualize grace, it's like dissecting a frog. It's dead before you even finish. And all the value you have of that is simply scientific, mental, intellectual value. It is dead before you finish. The grace that we need is grace that we both understand and experience, that is living, that is active, that is a transforming grace in our lives. What Paul wants to do in Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7 is protect us from being extremists, either one who says, you know what, I have grace, therefore I can live how I want, I can sin, it's a license to sin, and protect us from that as well as protect us from the person who says, you know what, you must keep God's law to have God's pleasure. You see, for us as believers, I think one of the greatest struggles for us is this. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, you're no longer under the law, but now under grace. 
We're familiar with those words, but what we don't understand is what is my relationship to the law now as a believer who is under grace? It's not that God's law is bad, it's good. If that is true, and it is also true that I'm not redeemed by keeping the law, but law, God's law is important, it's still in effect, it's still valuable, but I'm no longer under the law, then what is my relationship to God's law now that I'm under grace? I want to speak to you this morning about those of you who are legalists and may not even realize it. That you live your life on a daily basis in your relationship with Christ based on legalism, though you wouldn't label it that way, but you're constantly monitoring, am I doing what God wants me to do? Am I bringing pleasure to God? Am I doing God's will? That's not a bad question. The question is this, are you measuring it by God's law, his perfect standard, or are you measuring it by God's grace? And the question I want to ask you this morning is, are you a legalist? Are you performing in your life in order to have God's approval? Late Pastor Warren Wearsby wrote insightfully concerning this. He said, in my pastoral experience, I have counseled many people who have suffered emotional and spiritual damage because of legalism, because they tried to live holy lives on the basis of a high standard. I have seen the consequences of these attempts. Either the person becomes a pretender or he suffers complete collapse and abandons his desires for godly living. And I've seen too, he says, that legalists are extremely hard on other people. Critical, unloving, unforgiving, in a word, ungracious. The other halo's on too tight. So let me ask you again this morning, do you have your halo on too tight this morning? Do you have a sharp shooting kind of pain in your head that won't go away? This message is for you this morning. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 6, verse 14, you're no longer under the law, but now you're under grace. I wanted to tackle this entire chapter with our time this morning, but I realized 25 verses is not going to happen in three hours. So I reduced it to six verses, and we're going to look at just verses 1 through 6. And as we look at these verses, I want you to count how many times you hear the word law just in these six verses. Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Listen to what Paul begins. He's speaking to legalists, and listen to the grace that seasons his words as he begins talking to them. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound to the law by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, while her husband is living, she is joined to another man. She should be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, hear the tenderness in his voice. He calls them brethren because he's giving grace to the legalists that need grace the most. 
Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who is raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear the fruit of death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Do you notice how many times Paul used the word law? In 25 verses, that's right, in 25 verses he uses it 23 times, but in these six verses alone he uses it eight times. Paul has in mind the person who is the legalist, who is thinking that, yes, we're saved by grace, but I must maintain God's law in order to have his pleasure. He is speaking to the person who is the legalist. So Paul's going to do several things for us in this, these six verses. He's going to give us a picture, first of all, of what he is talking about, an illustration. He uses marriage. Now, marriage is not his main point. It's what he's making the point from marriage he wants us to get. Then he's going to talk about the point. What is the point of this illustration that I'm sharing with you? And then he's going to end with a practical purpose. What is the practical application of this lesson I'm teaching you about being a legalist? So the picture. Verse 2, Paul says, For the married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning her husband. Now, in marriage, it is recognized almost globally that when one spouse dies, the other is then free to remarry. The law no longer has jurisdiction over the person uh, when they are dead. Now, keep in mind, Paul is not talking about marriage here. That's not his main point. He's teaching about what it means to be free from the law. You're free from the law. Because of Christ's grace. So marriage is simply an illustration. So Paul says the law represents the husband and, the, and the, the wife represents the Christian. And the problem is that the law and the Christian are incompatibly married. The husband is always right. Always perfect. Always correcting. Now, I call that a wonderful marriage, don't you? And the wife is always wrong, always making mistakes, always being corrected by her perfect husband. Now, who in their right mind would want to be married to a person like that? And so the wife thinks, how can I get out of this? Well, I can murder him. Or I could divorce him. And Paul is simply saying what the law demands is perfection. And the wife is completely incapable of living up to it. But what the wife needs is grace. She needs forgiveness. She needs love. She needs understanding. She needs acceptance. Neither of which the law is capable of giving. Stuart Briscoe, in his commentary in Romans, perceptively captures the heart of Paul's analogy here. He says, Those people who see their hope of being justified, centered in their relationship with the law, do not have happy marriages with the law. Married as they are to the law, which is perfect and flexible, demanding and all-encompassing, they are soon driven to despair by their own incapability. 
In the same way, young, young brides have been known to be destroyed by domineering husbands who rectitude, in their rectitude, their character, was matched only by their insensitivity. Imagine, he says, what it must be like for a bride to be conformed, uh, confronted each day by a husband who has a, has a list of things that must be done thoroughly and perfectly. She must continue to do them. She must not only, only think about them, she must actually perform them. No half measures are tolerated. No concessions of weakness will be made. There are no excuses. No explanations will be asked for or given. And failure in every case will result in the unfortunate bride being cursed with her ineptitude and incompetence. Do you see the picture that Paul is painting about marriage to the law? It is an incompatible relationship. And therefore, the Christian is no longer under the law, but now under grace. Why? Because you'll never have grace under the law. It is incapable of giving us that. It only demands perfection, which we are incapable of living up to. Let me give you a deeper understanding of just how significant this incompatibility with the law in our relationship to God is. During the time of Christ, the law had become so distorted that the people could hardly discern between the rabbi's teaching and what the laws of Moses were. In fact, Jesus confronts this in probably his greatest sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7. In chapter 5, six times in that chapter alone, Jesus says, you have heard it said, relating to the opinions of the rabbis, of the ancients. But then he says, but I say to you, bringing people back to the original intent of God's law. So Jesus says things like this. He says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look upon a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery. What was Jesus doing? He was getting back to the true intent of the law, that the intent had to do with our heart before God, not simply our actions. You've heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you have murder or hatred in your heart, you have murdered your brother. Jesus is simply taking them back to the original intent of what God had for the law. You see, the law had become such a complex and confining web that it was made up of 613 precepts divided into 365 prohibitions, things you shall not do, and 248 commands, things you shall do. And all of them were designed to give a practical application of everyday living from the Old Testament. And during, the, during the time of Paul, None of these laws were written down. They were all handed down by oral tradition verbatim from memory. But when the Jews were scattered around the world, one rabbi in particular decided, you know what, we need to write down, we need to codify all these laws. And so he did. It became what is known as the Jewish Talmud. Talmud is the word for learning. And when that was finally finished, the Talmud consisted of 35 volumes. 15,000 pages, 2.5 million words. And it covered nearly every responsibility of life and has oftentimes been called the Jewish educator or the educator of the Jewish nation. Jewish youths would oftentimes spend 10 to 15 years of their first years submerged in learning these endless pages of instruction. 
And many people believe that is what has produced in the Jewish people some of the most prominent educators, inventors, physicians, grammarians, writers, etc. Just to name a few, Einstein, Freud, Kissinger, Begin, Elie Wiesel, Shimon Perez, just to name a few. And if you look at those who have won the Nobel Peace Prize, of those who have won the Nobel Peace Prize, some 23.6% of those were Jewish people, the most uh, people of any, any people group who have ever earned the Nobel Peace Prize. Why is that? Because they had spent their time absorbed in trying to learn and live the law in such a way that they believed that if I keep God's law, I can gain God's approval. Even today, if you go to Israel and you step onto an elevator, I've been there, I've watched it, and it's on a Saturday, a Shabbat, which means the day of rest, and you step onto that elevator, you will not have to push one button because the elevator will stop at every single floor going down and going back up. Why? Because pushing a button is considered as work on the day of Shabbat. It's against the law. <laughs> you see, the law does not lift a finger to help. It simply lit, uh, sets the standards and leaves you feeling frustrated and defeated. It does not help us be a Christian or become a Christian. That's the picture that Paul is trying to say. He's trying to say, if you want to be married to the law, you're going to have an impossible marriage. You're going to be defeated, frustrated, and feel depressed. And you're going to figure out, how can I murder my husband? How can I get out of this thing? And Paul's point is simply this. Verses 4 and 5, he says this. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ. Listen carefully to what he's saying. You were made to die to the law. How? Through the body of Christ. So that, what is his purpose? You didn't simply die to the law through Christ, but so that you'd be joined to another. Hold on to that word another. He used the word joined three times in this passage, referring to marriage. So that you may be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that, why? To bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. And the point that Paul is simply making is this, is that the law is no longer binding. Why? Because a death took place. Well, when did that death take place? That death took place to the law the moment you placed your trust in Jesus Christ. The moment you understood that Christ did for you what you could never do for yourself, that he died on the cross for your sins, that the only way you can have God's approval, God's acceptance, God's forgiveness is through Christ alone and your faith in him alone. When you did that, Paul says, the old you died. And therefore, since the old you died, the law no longer had jurisdiction over your life anymore. You're free from the demanding, unpleasable husband of the law. And he says, now you've been married to another. You see, like the husband who pointed out all the wife's faults, the law could only condemn men to death for their sin. But it had no power to redeem but now, Paul says, because of your faith in Christ, you've died to the law 
and to its demands and its penalty. You are now joined to another. Vance Havner, a name that we don't hear too often anymore, was a well-known pastor in the South. He used to tell a story about a demented woman who owned a plantation before the Civil War. It so happened that her husband died, and she decided that she was going to stuff her husband, put him in an airtight case, and set him in their parlor. Well, her neighbors thought she was losing it, and so they recommended that she take a vacation, and which she did. She went to travel for a couple of years, and during that time, she met a man, fell in love with him, and they decided to move back to the plantation. <laughs> well, the day came when he was carrying her across the threshold into their new home, and as they walked into the, the parlor, there sat her husband, the former husband, and as soon as he saw him, he dropped his wife, and he said in disgust and revulsion, Who is that? And she said, well, that's my old husband. And he said, he's got to go. <laughs> and Paul is simply saying that. He's saying that the old husband has got to go. You've been married to another. You have been joined to another husband, Christ. And you need to understand that. In fact, Paul emphasizes that in one little word that he uses, verse 4, the word another. There are a couple of ways you can say another in the original language of Greek. One way you could say another is what Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 16, when he said, I'm going to send another comforter like me. Another alas, meaning one exactly like me. Meaning this, that when you have the Holy Spirit in your life, you have someone exactly like Jesus. The third person of the Trinity now lives in you. And so he said there is alas, one just like Jesus. But that's not the word that Paul uses here in verse 4. He uses a second way that you can use the word another, and that's heteros. We get the word heterosexual, meaning one of a different kind. And so Paul is saying now you've been married to a husband of a totally different kind. Not like the old master, but now a new husband in Christ. A husband who is full of grace and truth. John tells us in John chapter 1 that when Christ came, he came in grace and in truth. That when we trust Christ, we are not accepting Moses as our master, but rather we're accepting God incarnate who came in grace and truth. And Jesus understands you better than you understand yourself. Jesus knows your weaknesses. He knows your hurts. He knows your struggles. He knows your heart better than you do. He says, I want you to understand something. I did not come to judge you. I came to save you. And I came in grace and in truth. Folks, we need grace. We not only need grace, but we need to know how to give grace to others as well. One of the greatest objections that people have with Christianity, or of Christians in particular, is they're not gracious people. They believe that they're simply stuck in the mud kind of people, their noses in the air, thinking that everybody else is not good enough and they are good enough. Now, we don't believe that, we don't see that, but that's the perception that a lot of people have. And all the more reason that we need to be people who are grace givers as well as grace receivers.
So what happens when you find somebody who maybe is living a life that is contrary to what you know God has called them to do, but they're not a believer? You give them grace. You love them where they're at. You give them grace because that's what they need. You know why? Because that's what you needed. God gave you grace when you were broken, and all you could offer him was your brokenness. God gave you grace when all you could offer him was your pain and your sorrow and your defeat. He gave you grace. And so in the same way, God says, I want you to give others my grace as well. So Paul says, you've been married to now a husband of a different kind than the law. Life under the law was an endless litany of rules and regulations which produced never-ending stream of fears and frustrations. But it's not that way with Christ. When we come to Christ, we discover a new husband, a new master. We discover life that is refreshing, grace that is understanding. John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. That word advocate means intercessor. Or another way of saying it, he is our defense attorney. And he's never lost a single case before the Father. And so John is saying that when you sin, which we do, and you will, it is not a license to do so, but rather when we do, we know that as we come to Jesus and say, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry. I blew it again. We have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The point that Paul is saying is this. You can't live a life of perfection because we are fallen, imperfect, inadequate human beings. You need a righteousness that is not your own. And the only way you can have that righteousness is through trusting Christ and gaining his righteousness that he gives to you by our faith in him. And when we do, we no longer live a life of fear and frustration, but now one of confidence and grace. Let me illustrate what I'm saying. During the building of the Golden Gate Bridge over the San Francisco Bay, construction fell badly behind scheduled because a number of workers had accidentally fallen from the scaffolding to their deaths. Engineers and administrators could find no solution to these costly delays, and finally someone suggested that a gigantic net be strung underneath the entirety of the bridge. Well, in spite of its enormous cost, the engineers opted for the net. And the moment it was done, progression of the bridge continued on. And ultimately, Progress is hardly interrupted at all. A worker or two fell, but they were immediately caught in the safety of the net. And ultimately, all the time that had been lost to fear was regained by replacing fear with faith in the net. And that's what grace is for the Christian. Grace is like the net that always catches us and takes away the fear of failure. I don't know if you're like me, but I'm a perfectionist. I know some of you find that hard to believe. 
But I want everything to be done just right, and I have high expectations of myself. And I'm easily defeated and discouraged when I don't live up to my own expectations. And I find myself beating myself up, re-crucifying myself when I mess up. And what I've had to learn time and time again is that come to Jesus, come to Jesus, come to Jesus, ask him to forgive you, get it right with him, pick yourself back up, stop beating yourself up, and keep walking with Jesus. Keep walking with Jesus. And learn what it means to walk in his grace. Learn what it means to walk in his grace. You see, Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 5, again, the great Sermon on the Mount, he says in verse 17, he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. Don't think I came to abolish it. He said, I came to fulfill it. Jesus satisfied all the requirements of the law for you and me. And the only way we can have God's forgiveness, the only way we can have Christ's righteousness, is through our faith in him alone. He goes on a little later in a few verses. Verse 20 says this. He says that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. And the scribes and the Pharisees are the most righteous, the most perfect people in Jesus' day. They were living according to the law, or so they thought. And they were living according to the law in such a way that they felt their, their approval by God would be, would, be, uh, 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 would be found by keeping the law. And Jesus is saying, if you're as perfect as them, you won't make it to heaven. Your righteousness must surpass them. The only way that can happen, the only way that can happen is through trusting Christ. And so the point that Paul is simply saying is this, is listen, when you trusted Christ, you died. And the jurisdiction the law once held over you, the demanding jurisdiction, is now gone. And you're under grace. The very thing you needed most is what God has given you through his son Jesus Christ. Grace. So now he makes a practical application to this. The purpose of all that he's been saying is this, in verse 6. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound. So that, whenever you see a so that, Paul is saying, here's the purpose, here's the reason, here's what you need to understand by the truth I've just stated. So that we serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Look at that word spirit. If you have your Bibles open, Romans chapter 7, that word spirit should be capitalized. Why? Because what Jesus or what Paul is saying here is that we serve God in the newness of the Holy Spirit who now indwells us. In other words, God's spirit of grace. Grace is the power to change. Grace is the power to be what God has called us to be. You now live in the newness of that spirit not in the oldness of the letter. You hear what Paul is saying? Stop beating yourself up. Stop re-crucifying yourself when Jesus was already crucified for you. Come to Jesus. Find his grace. And you'll find a well of living water that will refresh your soul 
that will never dry up, that no matter how many times you fail, no matter how many times you fall, the Bible promises us and God tells us that he who began a good work in you will complete it. You may give up on yourself. Others may give up on you. But God says, by my grace, I will never, never give up on you. If God never gives up on us, then we should never give up on ourselves. If God never gives up on us, then we should never give up hope for others to change as well in his grace. And therefore, we are wise, we are truly Christ-like when we offer grace to others though they don't deserve it, because that is, in fact, what they need more than anything else. I don't think there's any place that is an incubator of grace, a testing room, if you will, of grace, than the home, than being a mom and a dad. For years, there was a poem that hung on the wall in our home. I believe it's still there. It's a constant reminder to me that as we raised our girls, that we gave them the grace in Christ that they needed. And that grace spelled out meaning this, that they had the freedom to fail. They had the freedom to know that mom and dad would always love them, always accept them. They had the freedom to know that though they made mistakes, Mom and dad were always there. The poem was written by the late Dorothy Law Nolte. She entitled it, Children Learn What They Live. Listen to her words. If children live with criticism, they learn to condemn. If they live with hostility, they learn to fight. If children live with ridicule, they learn to be shy. If children live with shame, they learn to feel guilty. If children live with encouragement, they learn confidence. If children live with tolerance, they learn to be patient. If children live with praise, they learn to appreciate. If children live with acceptance, they learn to love. If children live with approval, they learn to like themselves. If children live with honesty, they learn truthfulness. If children live with security, they learn to have faith in themselves and others. If children live with friendliness, they learn that the world is a nice place in which to live. Children learn by what they live. Can I ask you a question this morning? Are you a legalist? Are you living out your days and your moments, making sure that you're dotting every I, crossing every T, somehow by the standard of your living in order to maintain and gain God's approval? God tells you in his word, you're no longer under the law, but under grace. It's not that the law is not 
important it is. There's a standard. But we cannot live up to that standard by ourselves. We need the grace of Christ in our lives. So God is saying to you and he's saying to me, listen, loosen your halo a little bit. Stop trying to please me by maintaining a list of do's and don'ts. As believers, we are now dead to the law as far as its perfect demands, its biting condemnation are concerned. We're now free to live and to love and to serve God, obeying without the fear of failure and condemnation. I pray as you leave here today that you're refreshed by the grace of God that is found in Christ alone. That maybe you're a perfectionist like me, or maybe you're one who says, it doesn't matter how I live, God's going to forgive me. Neither one of those are by which we should live. We should live instead under grace as God intends it to be in his word. A grace that is the power to change, a grace that is understanding, a grace that gives us what we have need of. Can I take this a step further? Are you gracious in your marriage? Or are you condemning and biting and demanding of your spouse? I think you'd be surprised that if you learn to give grace, you'll probably receive grace. And in so doing, you're modeling the very love of Christ, giving your spouse what they have need of, and in turn, finding your own needs met by God's grace as well. Will you pray with me? Father, we come to you today and we thank you. Thank you for your grace manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we come to you today and we ask that you'd forgive us where we have tried to live a life of trying to gain your approval through our own abilities. Lord, would you forgive us? And maybe that's you this morning. Would you come before God this morning and say, Lord, I am so tired. I'm tired of trying to be Charles Atlas in my own Christianity. Hold up the weight of my Christianity in my own strength. Lord, I can't do it. And thank you, God, for the freedom of your grace that you give me in Christ. That I can let that go and know, Lord, that you are working me both to will and to work according to your good pleasure. That it's your power in me through the indwelling Holy Spirit that enables me to live this life in relationship with you, Lord Jesus, a life of grace. Lord, help me to go into the days in front of me and not crucify myself all over again. But Lord, to turn to you for forgiveness pick myself up and dust off my knees and keep walking with you. Thank you, Lord, for your word and speaking to us 
so clearly and powerfully in grace and truth through your word. Help us, Lord, I pray, as we go into the world around us to be people of shining grace. And that people will see not us, but you, Lord Jesus. As we seek to live a life that is honoring and pleasing to you, we do it so in your power and your love. And we surrender ourselves fully to you, Lord Jesus, and give you thanks. We pray these things in your strong name, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.